welcome everyone who's listening, whoever that may be. This is the Paleo Protestant podcast with three members of the history department at Hillsdale College. One a Presbyterian, that's me. One a Lutheran, that's Dr. Moss, and one a an Anglican, that's Dr. Smith. Um, you'll be able to tell by our voices at some point. But today we're going to talk about uh, church polity. Um, We've talked some about various differences among the groups and what uh, what we hold on to. Each of our communions hold on, holds on to from the Reformation. Um, church polity is something that a lot of people in the pews, my suspicion is, although I, I could be corrected, don't know a whole lot about um, because it's sort of either in the weeds, in the making of sausage, whatever cliche you want to use. It's something that a lot of people in the pew don't know that much about until there is a problem. And even then it may be a bit of a, a um, something hard to catch up to. So I'll start off with Presbyterianism, partly because I just, I went to the general assembly this summer and was a commissioner there partly because I'm working on a writing project about Presbyterian church government growing up in the context of British politics and very much antagonistic to bishops, sorry, Dr. Smith, and uh, also to the monarchy in some ways, which has led some people to think that Presbyterianism is sort of responsible for the American revolution or the war for independence. And they, many Presbyterians, of course, did support that. But as people like to say, and I don't like to use the C word, it's much more entangled than that. Um, so we in the OPC have a special understanding of Presbyterian polity or attachment to it because of the church struggles that gave um, launch to our communion in the 1920s and 1930s when we sensed that the General Assembly was abusing its power against J. Gresham Machen, among others. And so the OPC can be pretty particular about Robert's rules and motions and uh, what's on the floor, what's not on the floor, what gets tabled. Um, that guides all of our meetings, but it, it's Robert's rules are surprisingly useful uh, when you get a, a body of, say, 150 people who are meeting in committee who need to deliberate various orders of business, which is what we do at a General Assembly. All of the commissions, all, sorry, all of the standing committees say in foreign missions or home missions or Christian education, make their reports or met, there are many other committees, but make their reports to the general assembly. And all the commissioners have to vote whether to recommend or not. We have some advisory committees set up within the structures of the general assembly to help process the reports and give instruction to the assembly, but it's as pretty good a del deliberative body as you can have our Presbyteries follow a very sim similar procedure with all their committees making reports and all the members of the um, Presbytery voting on those. And those members, I should add, are both elders, ruling elders and pastors. And um, Presbyterians believe in three offices, office of pastor, ruling elder and deacon. There's some provision in Calvin's um, ecclesiastical ordinances for the order of teaching uh, of teacher of the word or teaching pastor, someone who's employed at a, at a university or seminary in particular for training pastors. 
and we all do believe in the general office of all believers in that calling from God. But um, so at our assemblies or our presbyteries, ruling elders and pastors are both there with the same amount of power, each having a vote, uh, even though there's probably more pastors than elders at these meetings. Um, so, you know, in, in our name itself, and I don't mean to go on too long about this, but in the name itself, Presbyterian, it would seem like church polity is pretty important because we name ourselves <laughs> after a particular version of church polity, which is different from, I should add, from Reformed churches on the continent who go by the name Reformed and not Presbyterian. And they have some differences in polity, but generally still they hold to the three or four offices because m many of them also look to Geneva as a kind of model for a reformed church. And I'll throw in one other perspective on this, which plays into Dr. Moss's uh, field. But it, in writing this history of Presbyterianism, but also since all of us teach Calvin's ecclesiastical ordinances in Western heritage, or at least we have the option of teaching that since that's <laughs> in, our, in our reader, it's striking to me that for 1,400 years, well, maybe, maybe only 1,300 to 1,200, depending on how you do early church history. But bishops was the model of church government for at least for over a millennium. And then Calvin comes with this Presbyterian model of pastors, ruling elders, deacons, teaching, um, teachers of the word. And what's also intriguing is that in ways perhaps comparable to the British government, where you have a House of Lords, which has bishops in the House of Lords, Calvin had ruling elders who were on part of the, the city um, commission, the, the city board of governors um, in a kind of Republican model there. Uh, whether, so it's not as if there was a clean separation between church and state in, in, in Calvin's model. But still, it's intriguing, despite conciliarism in the 14th century, 13th century, efforts to check the power of a supreme pope or the supreme bishop in Rome, uh, and, and the idea of having councils of bishops meeting, it was still bishops meeting. It wasn't the lady really didn't have a voice in this the way Presbyterianism does. And so when you get British people, either English or Scots, eventually uh, Ulster, uh, Ulstermen in Ireland and some Welsh, uh, prote protective of their rights as Englishmen or British people, you throw church polity into that, and you can have Presbyterians overly particular about their rights of, they would always say of, of King Jesus, who is the Lord and head of the church, not the king or queen of England. Um, and that's what really riled up Presbyterians. But, you know, it's, 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 it's an odd history, and it's not something that you would expect. And I guess I'll turn first to Corey and whether Lutherans are attached to church polity in any way like that. We've talked before in previous recordings about 
Lutherans can sometimes have bishops or someone in a, in a capacity like a bishop, especially some of the Scandinavian countries, I guess. Um, but it doesn't seem like there's, a, there's one model of church polity that everyone really needs to follow, or even is it fair to say that Lutherans aren't as particular about church polity as, say, people who trace their lineage back to Scotland? Yeah. Yeah. And, and for a variety of historical reasons, I think it is the case. And I mean, as you suggested, uh, I mean, of the three of us, um, you know, in America, um, you know, those who are not sort of confessional Anglicans typically go by the name of Episcopalian. Um, and so, so, you know, of the three of us, you know, gathered around the Zoom screen here, I mean, two of us are at least loosely associated with denominations that are in some ways defined by polity, um, whereas Lutheranism isn't so much. Um, and, and historically, there, there are perhaps various reasons for that, but no, we're not as particular. And you, I mean, you talked a little bit about the, the sort of historical antagonism between Presbyterianism and uh, Episcopalianism in, in the, the context of the British Isles. But, but Lutherans never had that, that, that same kind of sort of, you know, contingent uh, circumstance that, that forced them to articulate a polity and, and to, to suggest that, you know, this is the, the best polity and therefore for all intents and purposes, you know, they're the only policy that any Lutheran, only mm -hmm. polity that any Lutheran should be following. Um, so yeah, we, we do have uh, a much more clearly uh, Episcopal polity in some of the Scandinavian churches, uh, some of the African churches, uh, a much more congregational polity in American Lutheranism. Hmm. Um, something, something kind of approximating an Episcopal polity in historic German Lutheranism, where you would have a, you know, a superintendent uh, acting as a kind of bishop over um, over a geographical area and its congregations. I mean, in, in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, um, it, it's a little bit confusing because we have, you know, a synodical president who for all intents and purposes looks kind of like an archbishop. And then we're divided geographically, mostly geographically into districts, which can look superficially like a diocese. Hmm. And each of those districts has a district president uh, and then, you know, below them, as it were, you've got you know, the, the individual pastors of individual congregations. Um, so, so there is a kind of hierarchy, but it's it, it's it, it's kind of a functional hierarchy, and and even I'm not sure that this is the right term, but but a kind of voluntary hierarchy. So the the congregations are in, in large respects autonomous and, and mm. self-governing. Wow. And, and, and the synodical body, the denominational body um, is an advisory body. Now, if they give you advice and you choose not to follow it, then you're you know, allowed to remove yourself from synod. <laughs> um, so, so it's not entirely voluntary that way, but you know, when it comes to, um, something like the, the Presbyterian General Assembly. How is that? Is that annual? Yes. Is that, okay. Yeah. So we although we, we missed one because of COVID, but uh, we, sure. Yeah, but so otherwise. Yeah, so, so we we have our um, convention uh, every three years, huh. 
And it's a little bit different. I mean, I suspect what happens there looks very similar to a, a general assembly, um, but the delegates are, are a little bit different. So technically, the, the only members in a strict sense of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod are congregations as, as bodies and clergy. So if, 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 you're, if you're a lay person attending a, a Lutheran Church Missouri Synod congregation, you probably think of yourself as a member of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. In a technical, political, constitutional sense, you're not. Your congregation huh. is, yeah. your, your pastor is. Um, and so pastors attend convention as delegates, as representatives, and then a, a lay representative from a congregation uh, will attend. So in general, we have equal parts clergy and laity at, at our sort of decision-making uh, and policy-making meetings. And do they make many decisions in the sense that you could see if your membership is in the congregation, mm -hmm. you're going to convention basically to hear what's going on, but it's more an informational meeting than it actually may be a deliberative body. But I don't but is, is there actual power no. that the convention well, there, yeah, has? Yeah, there is, and, and different levels of power. Um, so, you know, months before one of these conventions takes place, you know, the, the conventional workbook goes out, and it includes all of the various reports and resolutions, uh, which will be voted on. Um, and these have, you know, gone through committees, and these resolutions are proposed by clergy or congregations, so all of the delegates ahead of time have a chance to, to read through this, read through all the supporting material. Um, and then there is actual debate and deliberation you know, in the convention. And, and then a vote is taken. Um, so, so, yeah, binding policies are made by, hmm. by the delegates to these conventions, you know, including a, a substantial number of, of laity being involved in that. Now, how about judicial cases? So we'll, and there'll be a hook for this um, later in the recording, should the Lord tarry. Um, <laughs> but does this, does convention meet as a court of appeal, say, if there have been any disciplinary cases at the congregational level, can they, can they be at the district level as well? Can they be at the convention level? So we have powers, all of our, assemblies such as it is session in the congregation mm -hmm. presbytery and general assembly all can act as judicial bodies as well and hear cases appeals complaints from members against pastor or session from congregations etc all the way up the line and the final court is the general assembly and we had a busy docket this summer because we had two years of cases to, to mm. Right, see. right. So, uh, does, is anything like that true for the convention? Um, no. So, I mean, th th there's a process spelled out in our constitution and bylaws for disciplinary proceedings, um, and including an appeals process that involves district presidents and you know clergy and sometimes lay representatives who would sit on a, a disciplinary board. Um, but I don't think those kinds of decisions, I, I mean, I could be mistaken, but I'm, I'm not aware of any examples of those kinds of decisions going beyond that procedure laid out in the constitution and bylaws to an actual convention. Mm. 
Um, so in a, in a way, it sounds like if there's any discipline in the LCMS, a congregation could choose to leave and escape any penalty or. Yep. That, that's right. Yeah. They, 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 they could, they could, they could choose to leave. And, and I suppose since we're talking about polity, this is an important thing about the sort of quasi congregational polity. Um, it's easier for a congregation to choose to leave if they're in disagreement um, because the congregation owns the property. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, leaving effectively means we just scratch Missouri Synod off of the sign out front and we, you know, we can still call ourselves a Lutheran church and the same, you know, hundred of us can sit in the pews and the same pastor can be in the pulpit. We're just not associated with that organization anymore. Please don't take this the wrong way, but even, <laughs> even the word convention. Oh Yeah smacks of the Southern Baptist Convention. I mean, this it, it, it the congregational autonomy sounds yeah. very reminiscent of the SBC, the, the little bit that I know of it. And I mean, does that ever come up in Lutheran circles? Why, why are we like the SBC? Do, do, I mean, do you even <laughs> think about the comparison? Uh, less in terms of convention terminology than in the, the terminology of president, district president. Huh. Um, and so, yeah, so this, this, is a, this is a long running debate, whether or not our congregational polity and the terminology that we use for it is simply um, a kind of German immigrants assimilation to America. You know, why, why do we not call our district presidents bishops? Because that's kind of the, the function that they're fulfilling. Um, there's a theological answer to that, but maybe we can save that for later after the well after the Episcopalian tells us about bishops. If you're not going to play, the, if you're not going to play the theology card, Presbyterians <laughs> would say this is the biblical way of doing church government. For, those bishops didn't come until Constantine. <laughs> so speaking of bishops, Miles, what what what's your um on take on this? I mean, how much? couple of ways of thinking about it, but why don't you describe a little bit the way church polity works in the Anglican communion, and then the degree to which that is a part of the identity of people who go to Anglican churches. Does, um, it, does it filter down in that way that people in the pew say, yeah, I, I like Episcopacy? So, no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think a good way to describe um, the way at least the Anglican Church in North America is administered is that you have every year you have a provincial assembly and at that provincial assembly you have laity, laity rule in ACNA in a way they don't in say a Presbyterian church because um, you have essentially a, a, a council of a laity that form um part of the provincial assembly and they are in a council with clergy that essentially operates as the provincial council. And there's the bishops themselves who comprise the college of bishops. So within, so you have those, those are the two houses, if you will, <laughs> of, of the provincial assembly, you have the college of bishops and then you have the provincial council, which is clergy and lady, um, lady are appointed to it. Um, and 
And when you say clergy and laity in that council, is that any bishops or is that mean no, the priests? There are no, there are no bishops. In okay. the, at one of the things to, it's worth noting is in ACNA right now, and there's a lot of talk about changing this, retired bishops can vote in the College of Bishops. Hmm. Um, and so this is something that uh, is very much debated. Uh, so um, I think in the Episcopal Church, the retired bishops can still vote. Don't quote me on that. But so you have these two houses of government, and essentially the provincial assembly is, is, is the annual meeting of those two essentially houses of, of government. Um, it doesn't work the same way a Presbyterian general assembly um, does because it's not really, a, there isn't a court um, that operates within it. So again, this is where you can tell Presbyterian designed by an attorney, right? Um, <laughs> uh, that there, there's there's this kind of legal aspect. I also think it's it's worth noting that bishops, um, Anglican bishops, aren't Roman Catholic bishops. They don't really operate the same way. Um, so, for example, um, ordination in in the Anglican Communion operates very differently, uh, especially to the Episcopacy, than it does in the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, there's much more interplay. Bishops have to kind of bounce off each other a lot more in Anglicanism than they do in Roman Catholicism. Uh, so, for example, a bishop needs to be ordained by uh, three other bishops. Hmm. Um, you can't simply be ordained by an archbishop. Um, and so it's not as it's not as monarchical uh, in that sense. Um, and the other the other thing, too, is the way that bishops, what they do is different in Anglicanism. Um, they're administrators. And the biblical case um, is, is, is basically taken from men like Titus, who are, who are overseeing ministers, groups of, groups of ministers. And so I think what... Um, some, yeah, some, well, well, we'll talk about that. But right. Um, <laughs> so some some is, is maybe the difference between the way... Um, the, the, the way that people read the Bible. I think Presbyterians look to scripture for instructions um, and they're looking for a prescribed way of doing church. Um, I think most of the reform, with the exception of I think Hungary's reformed churches um, has Episcopacy, Hawaii's right. reformed church had Episcopacy, but I think most of the continent has Presbyterian or some sort of Presbyterian. Synodical, yeah, yeah, very much. Yeah, mixed. Um, and so bishops, I think, in the Anglican context, are, are are doing something that is very different than people would assume when they look at the Roman Catholic Church. Mm. They don't have the same powers. Um, they don't they don't have the same sort of ability to rule. They really do administer. Um, so this isn't the sort of monarchical episcopacy that you see associated with with Rome. Um, you can slide in and out. A parish can slide in and out among a couple bishops um, if if everybody's agreeable to it. The Roman Catholic Church doesn't allow you to do that, right? You right. So back to the uh, province, is ACNA one province? Yes, ACNA, the Anglican Church in North America is one province in the right. Anglican Communion, and it covers uh, all of the United States, part of Canada, not all of Canada, but there's a few Canadian parishes and um, a few now in, in the Caribbean. So, for example, my diocese just received parishes in Haiti. Um, mm. 
And so some of that has to do with, again, this is a difference between Rome and, and, and Anglicanism, is that if a bishop's situation breaks down, he can pass off a parish to another bishop. So even built into kind of the, the dispositions, you don't have that kind of strict geography and hierarchy that you do in the Roman Catholic Church. And, and how it did ACNA, Anglican Church North America, make any changes in church polity when they left the Episcopal Church? I mean, so what, did they see problems in the structures of the Episcopal Church that said, no, we don't want to do it that way. We're going to do a different kind of episcopacy. Yeah, very much so. So when the when the PCA was formed in the 70s, there were a lot of changes made on how church property worked. Right. Um, and some of those similar changes have been incorporated into the Anglican Church in North America's canons. So, uh, you know, an, an Anglican Church that in North, an ACNA parish that happens to own its property, which is like finding a snow leopard, they're not very common. Um, they aren't going to have the same sort of property strictures on them that, that hmm. their Episcopal churches had. Um, and Agnes so new, not a lot of churches own their own property. We, we, my parish happens to, by the way, we own our own property. Did they change the, so you talked about bishops being administrative. I mean, was that also a change though from the Episcopal church that there was a bit of a downgrade of the power of, I don't really know what the Episcopal yeah, church's bishops. It's a de facto downgrade for sure, because uh, if there's a problem with our property, we don't ever go up appeal it to the bishop but you know our, our vestry will hmm. um so yeah there's a lot more separation on something like the physical plant of the parish from the 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 power of the episcopacy than there was in the episcopal church so, so yeah that's at, a, a change at the local level then you have the priest and the vestry and what are their powers duties like and and how well do you think your average Anglican member know about that? So I think the, the perception is the vestry operates um, really overseeing the physical plant and even something like the hiring and firing of a, of a rector. Uh, so that's a conversation between the, the, the bishop doesn't just decide to do those things. He consults with the vestry. Um, and so uh, there's, there's not total freedom. A good, a good, example of a bishop's power is that he can't tell us to hire someone um, but he can tell us that we can't hire someone so you can't hire this guy because i want him to stay at his parish um, and <clears throat> so uh, he can't force a, a rector on us uh, but he can say yeah in your search that guy's off limits so he can he can sort of aim a little bit but he doesn't have the kind of trigger pull that, say, a Catholic uh, bishop does. Right. And then at the at the ten thousand foot level, with the with the provincial council and the College of Bishops, is that the right terminology? Yeah. <clears throat> Which meet every year. Is there an archbishop above them, and is it one of the bishops from Africa? No. So our archbishop is. Uh, He's also a bishop. So this is what, and I think you'll see this more and more. Um, smaller province, Acne is a relatively small province, by the way. It's only about 150,000. So our archbishop, uh, Foley Beach, 
is also the bishop of the South. Huh. His diocese is, is the Southeast. And so the, the, this is a good question. What does the archbishop actually do? Well, he basically polices the bishops. Um, he, he, in consultation with other bishops, serves as kind of a, a you know, a, a policeman. He's a premier in a pares in a lot, in a lot of senses, um, similar to the Archbishop of Canterbury. He doesn't have a ton of administrative um, power in the same way a Roman Catholic Archbishop uh, does. Um, so our cathedrals function differently in that sense. Mm -hmm. uh, cathedrals aren't particularly important outside of England and, mm -hmm. and Ireland to a lesser extent. Yeah. Um, so, and is the archbishop a status that goes inherently with the Bishop of the South or does this rotate and does it depend on a vote of the other bishops? Yeah, it, it rotates and he does depend on a vote. Yeah. He has to be chosen. He's actually selected at, at uh, um, through the, the, the provincial assembly. Um, so the house, both, both houses in consultation. Um, but there it. is also oversight from bishops in Africa of ACNA. Is that fair or that is uh, not, not anymore. Um, huh. So they can So recently there was a dust up over, um, uh, you know, sort of the question of where would ACNA go on, on sexuality. Um, and the, Archbishop of Lagos, who's the primate of uh, Nigeria, primate meaning the, the, the premier bishop, um, sent a letter basically um, scolding Agna. Huh. Um, now, he can't remove our archbishop. He, he has no oversight to do that. But he basically sends a letter scolding us for sort of not being as conservative as we should be. And I think this is what's interesting is, is uh, the lines are it's 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 more organic in the sense of it's familial um it's not particularly it's not as much like a machine per se mm -hmm. as uh, presbyterianism has got the it's it's a machine it's efficient there's like you you made a good point about robert's rules there's things that have to do and so i think the personalities of the bishops uh, come into play for sure they probably don't come into play in the way that people might perceive it with a roman catholic bishop mm -hmm. um you know, uh, the, the, an Anglican archbishop is primarily an exhorter, um, sort of an encourager in chief, different than, say, Tim Dolan in New York would be, who's running his archdiocese in a way that um, we don't, we don't have an archdiocese mm -hmm. in, in, in the ACNA. So we had a number of uh, appeal cases that came to the General Assembly coming up from presbyteries, and some of those had to do with congregations, sessions in different presbyteries, perhaps seeing things differently on a church plant and appealing to presbytery and then General Assembly. But we've also had moral cases that come, and I'm curious if say there is a an instance of marital infidelity by a church member in a Lutheran or Anglican congregation parish, parish congregation. Is it clear what what steps are followed? I mean, is it the case that Anglicans 
the bishop finally has to be the one to step in and make make the call in consultation with vestry and rector and in the lutheran setting does the dist can the district intervene if a congregation isn't handling it well how does that that work we didn't have any cases like that i can um give you examples of ones that we did but um but I, you know in our polity it's pretty clear that a member can bring a charge against another member or even an officer and the officers in the church the members of session el ruling elders and pastor are actually supposed to help the church member to formulate the charges in a proper way even if even if the uh, session is about to get charged they're supposed to help with the charges and then it then there are all sorts of procedures from there about how the process goes forward but is that clear in in the lutheran and anglican settings i mean in in the in the lutheran setting it's it's clear in this sense that it's that the process is is cl is clearly written down i'm i'm guessing that that what that process is isn't clear to you know 95% of the people actually sitting in the pews or or for that matter a, a good number of clergy um you know, happily, that's just because they've, they've never had to go through the process, right. never had to deal with the process. But yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty clearly written down um, in, in the synodical bylaws. And so, yeah, if an accusation is made and, you know, if it for some reason needs to go beyond the congregation. So, for example, if, uh, I mean, if we're talking about clergy, you know, if, if a clergyman is accused of some impropriety, uh, an accusation is made in the congregation by a congregation member and the congregation, you know, hears the evidence and says, oh, well, yeah, this is just blindingly obvious uh, that this was improper. Um, then the congregation of its own authority can vote to hmm. remove a pastor. Um, if for some reason, you know, making all of this public to the congregation would would you know cause scandal, or maybe there's not you know, the kind of slam dunk evidence that, that the congregation might want. Um, then the district can be involved, mm. and the district president um, will appoint a, a committee to uh, hold a hearing, and then it you know kind of operates like a, like like a courtroom. Um, both sides present their case, present their evidence. Um, and uh, a decision will be handed down. And then there's an opportunity to appeal that decision um, and a fairly clear guidelines about how that happens, who gets appointed to that appeals panel. Hmm. Um, so yeah, it's, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's very American in, it, mm -hmm. in its way. Um, I mean, on the analogy of our, our court system and appeals court system. But so the, it's, yeah. The okay. convention is not the Supreme court. That's right. Yeah. I mean, or even some representative body of the convention is not the Supreme court. It's still very much at the district and congregational level. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I guess it, depending on how you wanted to parse this, you could say that, you know, the convention is a representative body of the entire synod 
and all of its members, namely all of its congregations, all of its clergy, and that these kind of ad hoc commissions to oversee particular cases are made up of people who represent the congregations and the clergy of synod. So it's kind of, um, right. I mean, you could say that it's representative of the institutions who would be present at convention, but it doesn't actually go to a convention. Yeah. So what about in the case of a, a moral, um, uh, problem in, in the Anglican setting, does it, does it have to get to the bishop for? It, I know it does with the clergy. I actually have no idea with lay people. I've never, um, I've never heard of a situation where a bishop got involved. doesn't mean they don't happen. Right. I, 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 I just, I, I've never heard of it, but I, I actually don't know. Uh, with clergy very much, but with lay people, uh, I, I've, I've never heard of a bishop kind of getting involved um, at a parish level, but that doesn't mean it doesn't happen. So, see, Presbyterianism is the perfect polity for hot Protestants. If you want, <laughs> if you want holy Protestants, you've got all sorts of mechanisms to get those people to behave and and to uh, to pe- penalize them if they don't. Whereas, it sounds like in the Lutheran, I mean, in the Anglican Church. No offense. Uh, it may sound a little loose and it's good for cold Protestants. Uh, <laughs> and the Lutherans are, are um, peculiar. It, no, no offense. It just, it's, I mean, w- partly because we don't know much about them. Your ordinary. Well, I mean, it's, it started, st- start, yeah, starting to sound like uh, the, the Lutherans are the most American of, <laughs> of, of all of us here. Well, well speak- I, I, I have a question for you, Daryl, though. So, so if, if a general assembly acts as a, as a final court of appeals, I mean, do, do you know in advance how long general assembly will last in any given year? We do. We have, we have a um, stated order of, of meeting where we cannot meet beyond. So, you know, everyone books their flights accordingly and, they make arrangements accordingly, and it's down to a system. I mean, we have it down pretty well, and the moderators um, of the assembly, and this is a little inside joke here, but I've been nominated the last two assemblies by a, a good guy, young pastor, who's also a bit of a, um, a rascal. He's nominated me twice now to be uh, moderator, which would be one of the worst things imaginable. <laughs> but I got 28 votes in 2019. I got 34 votes this year out of roughly 130 each time. Um, and I mean, it's, you need to, to, to be moderator. You just need a, a majority. Simple majority. Yeah. Um, but I mean, you need somebody who knows the agenda well enough and sort of, and there are time limits on presentations from the heads of various standing committees and the like. So we have it worked out to try to keep us on track. And then there's a fair amount of time for deliberations once we get to appeals and complaints, the last two days of the assembly. Um, and it's remarkable how, how well it, it works overall, even though oftentimes most people are disappointed with the proceedings and they don't seem very godly or pious, <laughs> even though we have devotions every day just before lunch. And we have, <laughs> we start every session singing 
a hymn or a psalm. And, and I was actually moved several times at the quality of song of all these men. There are women there too, who are mainly observers, but it was, it was really great singing. Um, so, you know, but there's a bit of, and there's a lot of fraternity and fellowship afterwards. So it's, it's, um, it's a very deliberative time though. And yeah, we have, we know how much time there is and uh, people see the clock ticking and they sort of know to get things done. So did you want to follow up on that or does that seem? Well, well, I mean, I mean, I don't know if our listeners are all interested, but I'm, I'm curious now because <laughs> I mean, if, if there were an inordinately large number of, you know, disciplinary review cases or appeals, um, I mean, I don't know what sorts of, are they, are those appeals simply considering whether the prior process was followed or are they rehearing evidence? I mean, cause I could, I could right. see, you know, if I were accused of something and, and it gets to the appeals process, I could, I could see myself complaining that, you know what, we only had three minutes left till everyone had to go catch their flights. How, how could I get a fair hearing? Right. It's usually the latter meaning was the process followed correctly. Okay. But if you overturn, which we did this year, a presbytery, their decisions about a complaint, if we side with the complaint, um, you sort of have to rehear okay. it all. Okay. So, and again, that there is time built in for that. But in one of the advisory committees I was on was we had four or five of these appeals complaints and we were told repeatedly, we're not retrying the case. We're not retrying. Gotcha. The case. Okay. We're trying yeah, to yeah. lay it out so that arguments can be made. The commissioners can hear it and then um, decide whether to side with the appeal or, or not. Carol, what, um, what particularly would a, would general assembly look for when they were overturning a, a presbytery's decision? Would it be a question, the process question, the dispositions of the complaint to begin with? What, right. It can be processed that can, that can easily get you. And what that happens then is oftentimes it's sent back to the lower judicatory and then they can, they can retry it. Um, but in the, in the, one of the cases this year had to do with a couple of ministers who were speaking ill of members in the church, in this case, particularly women. And one of the um, members of Presbytery was offended by some of that language and, um, and his appeal had to do with whether those men, ministers were treated um, too graciously or whether they needed to face more um, penalties for what they did. And the General Assembly sided with this person. I hope I'm representing that well, fair, fairly enough. So there, there's a case where you could say that they Presbytery misjudged. Um, well, before we close, um, I, I mentioned this in our uh, warm up to the recording. There is this podcast going around from Christianity Today about the rise and fall of Mars Hill. Mars Hill was the Seattle Seattle church where Mark Driscoll, who was one of the young, restless, and reformed at one point, or the so-called New Calvinists, but also was part of the Acts Twenty Nine network of church planting. Um, a mixture of goth, a mixture of urban hip coolness in the late nineties, early aughts. Um, and then he sort of burned out, I guess, in certain ways or, or 
maybe became too much of a celebrity and too big of a head. Um, and the reason for bringing that up isn't to further engage in what some people have called failure porn. That's what some people have described the podcast as, ooh, we can somehow take some delight in the, f- the fall of this guy who could sound like a jerk at times. Um, but I'm, it's, it's curious to me whether the mechanisms of church government that we have in our separate communions, whether so, a Mark Driscoll phenomenon like that could emerge, because one of the problems that they face there, since this was a creation of a congregation from scratch that eventually had multiple sites, and so you conceivably had six or seven ministers, all part of the same church, even though the church is meeting in different locations, and elders within that, um, but Driscoll as the founding pastor, the guy who was the biggest um, biggest appeal, kind of function, I guess, as a bishop too. So it's hard to then know how to get rid of someone like that. So it's just a, that's a that talk about American though. That's a really American story, unlike the Lutherans who have maybe adapted to American structures, but still it's structured in ways that Mars Hill was not. So. And this is aside from whether or not contemporary worship happens in our communions. Of course, it does in different degrees. But could what sort of checks are there on a situation like Mars Hill? I mean, it's obvious in some ways there's a check. Driscoll did, decided not to try to align with the Presbyterian Church or the Anglican Church or the Lutheran Church. He just went completely independent. Um, so maybe there's a certain kind of self-selection that goes on, but if you do get a celebrity pastor or a celebrity bishop who gets a little bit over their skis, what do you, what do you do? Or could it not happen? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm having a hard time thinking of anything even like a close analog to a celebrity pastor in the LCMS. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, And, and, and and those who, I mean, have, have name recognition. I think something of someone like Hans Feeney with uh, the Lutheran satire or. um, Ed Vieth. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, they're mostly known through through media that's not associated directly with their congregation right, right. Um, and and so their their footprint might be bigger out there than it actually is in their congregation um, and in their congregations they might they might just be you know normal guys who who play by the rules and people respect um, so I mean I I can't think of an example of something like that happening that, 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 of course, doesn't answer the question of could it happen, mm-hmm. although, although I think it would be much more difficult in our polity, even though, even though it is very much a congregational polity, um, because you, your congregation and because each member of the clergy in that congregation chooses to be uh, part of a, a synod with a constitution and bylaws, um, and, and pretty much the only way to get into um, a, a position of ministry is to go through one of our seminaries mm-hmm. uh, to be to be vetted by um, the those who 
qualify a person to be ordained for ministry, um, and then to you know have the approval of uh, a district president when you actually receive a call to a congregation. Hmm. So I mean that there are some some checks on the front end, um, and then on the back end too. I think I mean not nothing would prevent someone. Nothing in, in LCMS polity would prevent someone from becoming a, a kind of you know, superstar megachurch pastor. Um, but if some of the, the, the moral failings associated with the, 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 the fall of, of Mark Driscoll were present, um, then again, there are because we're a, a, a synod of churches um, and because there is oversight by district president, synodical president, and others, um, I like to think that there's that there's much less of a chance of someone being so independent and having so much power over his local congregation that these things get get overlooked uh, or suppressed for years on end. And I want to be clear so that we don't get sued. Um that the moral failings are not sexual, as I understand it. No, that's with, right. That's right. With Driscoll, it has to do with perhaps, I think, plagiarism, plagiarism was one thing, but also being something of a bully yeah, to, to right. fellow pastors, uh, which is also not like what Jesus told his, his disciples to be. So there is, a, there is a morality to that, but it's not on the order of the salacious character, say, yeah. of um, – Sexual impropriety. Yeah. No, and, and, and this is a good point because, I mean, there, there, we, we do hear tales of Lutheran pastors who are, you know, overbearing and who are overly controlling of congregations. Um, but uh, the congregation itself, not, not a board of elders handpicked by the pastor, uh, but the congregation itself can vote to remove a pastor. Huh. I mean that that's 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 always very sad, and especially if it's you know, if it has to do with something like you know the personality rather than doctrine or or a clear moral failing. Um, but but the congregations are empowered in a way that they might not be in some other more independent yeah. autonomous models. So with the Anglicans, Miles, is that is that does it go from the congregation to the bishop, and the bishop winds up being a check? on a celebrity priest, but what if you have a celebrity bishop? But it sounds from what you've said already that there is a kind of familial character structure to the bishops themselves, that they themselves kind of police each other. I think I don't know very many celebrity bishops, um, but I will say this, they can be a check on celebrity pastors or kind of <clears throat> sustain them. I think mm -hmm. there's, especially in the act that most of our, celebrities are not Anglican celebrities. They're sort of Christianity Today-esque evangelical ones. Hmm. New York Times, you know, ones now. <clears throat> and so what, what you- well, who, who could you possibly have in mind there? Go ahead, go um, ahead. So I think what you see is essentially bishops sort of letting that, you know, sort of open season, they can do what they want. Um, another bishop might say, no, I'm going right. to run, run my diocese um, so that we don't have celebrities, that you guys don't become famous. Um, so I think it's kind of a, a little bit of a give and take there. I don't know of any celebrity bishops in ACTA, <clears throat> um, at least who are Anglican celebrities. Um, 
were there celebrity bishops in the Episcopal Church U.S. Yeah, I mean, Michael, in the history of the church? I can't yeah, remember. Like Michael Curry, Bishop Spawn. Um, Spong, uh, What's his name uh, in Boston um, who wrote A Little Town of Bethlehem? I just saw his statue outside of Trinity Church, Boston. Um, there have been a, there have been a few. Um, I mean, he was he was a, only a bishop at the end of his life. But right. um, I mean, another curious aspect of this is that it seems like the bishops in the Roman Catholic Church allow the laity a lot more room than perhaps priests or religious have. That there there are mechanisms for checking those who are ordained in ways that say a Ross Douthat, a Patrick Deneen, an Adrian Vermeule, for instance. Some of the public intellectuals can say a lot about what the church stands for and even criticize bishops or the pope, and um, and it won't have any real consequences. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Well, we've been going on almost uh, almost an hour, I think. So um, any last thoughts or comments about this matter? Pretty boring of church polity, even though it winds up. I guess I'm still, it doesn't sound like it's very important to the identity of people who, who would call themselves Lutheran or even that would call themselves Anglican. No, I think in, in, in ACNA's context, the prayer book has become a lot bigger yeah. source of identity than um, uh, an, an archbishop or bishop. There's, the 2019 prayer book was launched you know, a year and a half or so ago, and that was a lot bigger deal than say the change from Archbishop Hunter to Archbishop Beach. I don't know how many people notice that, um, but people will notice the prayer book change. So, right. Yeah, well, and I think that goes back to something you said too, Daryl, about, you know, without getting into the, some of us have contemporary worship, some of us don't. I mean, to, to the extent that, you know, there's a, uh, a liturgy that everyone is expected to follow. Um, and in Anglican and Lutheran circles, certainly, um, you know, vestments that, that people are expected to wear. Not that everyone wears them, but, but there's, there's an expectation um, that, that does do something to, to dampen and prevent the arising of a cult of personality. Because you know, the, the, the pastor standing up in this church is saying the same words as every other pastor wearing the same clothes as every other pastor. So it's, it's a lot more difficult to, to distinguish and, and to, to, to treat him as somehow special. I mean, maybe his sermons are a little bit better. Maybe his chanting is a little bit better. Um, but, but, but it's harder to fixate on him and his cool sneakers and his skinny jeans and his tattoos <laughs> When, when you, you don't get to see any of that because he's actually wearing, you know, a, a cassock and surplus or something like that. Right. I mean, I was, I've been thinking recently, I'm about to teach in Sunday school, adult ed, about Presbyterianism. Um, and I, I've been thinking the ways in which if you walk into our worship space, what makes it look Presbyterian and of course the centered pulpit with the table below and a table and not an altar and the different ways that you could say, Oh yeah. But even though um, St. Peter's in Geneva wouldn't have, they didn't move the pulpit. <laughs> they kept it over on the side when, what, 
at the time of the Reformation, a lot of these churches just kept what they had. They maybe they got rid of some images and whatnot. But you know, I, I think the only time when the congregation may be aware of who the elders, ruling elders are in our church is when we distribute the Lord's Supper. All the elders come forward and are part of that distribution. And also when we greet new members, receive them into the congregation, we have a, a, a part of the service dedicated to that. But otherwise, I mean, you know, it would be hard to tell hmm. if we weren't serving the supper that Sunday, which we, we do weekly observance. But if we weren't, what would be the difference between this and a Methodist or I'm not even sure what a Methodist church looked like or but a Baptist church, say. Um, I mean, in the Dutch Reform world, though, oftentimes it was the case. And this was true even in Wheaton CRC, where I was ordained as an elder, uh, someone from the consistory, which is the equivalent of the session ruling elder, would walk forward with the minister to the pulpit at the front of the church, shake his hand, sort of giving his blessing. So this is, you know, our guy, but we're still sort of in control here. Um, But, you know, if you're not liturgical, which typically Reformed, but especially Presbyterians aren't, it's hard to think of ways to kind of formalize or routinize these things make them into kinds of ceremonies to recognize this. So, well, I thought this was instructive for me. Um, We'll see how many advertisers we get wanting to sign up (laughs) after this discussion, but, um, but this was a, this was a good one to clear off our, our, our checklist. Um, Because church quality is important. And it makes and it makes me feel lazy now, since both of you guys have to meet every year, and we we just go every three years. Well, I've I've actually contemplated and and argued with or talked about with friends, maybe going to a general assembly every other year, and having a synod on on east eastern part of the country and a synod on mm-hmm. the western part, and those would meet every year, but the general assembly would only. Um, but still, that would mean all of the uh, standing committees of the Agen- General Assembly would have to report conceivably to the synods. I don't know. How that. So they would be doing double work. Right. Um, it's hard to know. Well, thanks. Um, we'll call it a day for now and um, hope your syllabi are ready. <laughs> thanks, Daryl. <laughs> or close. All right. Thanks. <laughs> thanks Take care, gentlemen.